you know, obviously since the, the, the 80s, we've, we've really had to wrestle with is, is higher education a public good, right? Like we come mm -hmm. back to that conversation. And I think these are the, um, uh, the kind of reverberations of us as a society, not really having um, coherent and consistent understandings of whether we think higher ed is a public good. And, and the reason I come back to that is because if it is a public good, then we should want as many people involved in the governance apparatus as possible, since it impacts many, many of us, all of us. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing academic governance, boards and, le boards and legislatures, and political interference in higher education. We're highlighting the recent conflict between the Michigan State Board and its president, Samuel Stanley Jr., who resigned on Thursday, October 12th. We'll expand on this specific case study to explore the politically motivated interference in higher education we see from boards, legislatures, governors, and more. We'll also explore what higher ed leaders can do to maintain integrity, effective governance, academic freedom, and education that serves the individual and public good. I'm grateful to have guests today with expertise and experience to help us all unpack all of this. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. This episode is also sponsored by Leadership. Go to leadership.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota in the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. I'm so grateful to have four guests today. Uh, let's begin with introductions. Felicia, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Felicia Commodore. I am an associate professor of higher education at Old Dominion University, which is located um, in Norfolk, Virginia, which is um, located on the lands of the Algonquin, which is also known as the Chesapeake um, um, indigenous people. Um, it's also the in the land of where um, the first enslaved Africans were brought to uh, the United States of America. And so we wrestle with um, living and working in a place that was built on the backs of stolen land, stolen bodies, and stolen labor. Uh, I um, do research in the area of leadership, governance, and administrative practices with a particular focus on minority serving institutions and historically Black colleges, and also research in the areas of the role of boards in advancing equity at institutions, including organizational culture, organizational behavior, and decision-making processes. And so I'm really excited to be here and be part of this conversation. Yeah, thanks for being back with us. We had a previous conversation about a year ago about boards and legislatures. And now we're we're diving in deep again. So thanks for, for coming back to us. Uh, and on that conversation, we mentioned some of uh, Dimitri's work. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about you and your work um, as we you join us here today. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Keith. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Dimitri. Um, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm a faculty member um, at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, and Loyola is um, currently on the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Council of Three Flyers, the Ottawa, Ojibwa, uh, and Potawatomi. Um, and I, similar to Dr. Commodore, do research on uh, boards of, of trustees and governance. Um, but I also think more broadly too, uh, as well about higher ed's role in a diversifying democracy. So what role does higher education need to play um, as we think about what's happening in society and in the world more generally? So um, I, I focus on a lot of different things that help me understand that phenomenon, including student activism. Um, I explore STEM education and its role in the labor force um, and then as well as governance. So really excited to uh, be in community with you all today. Yeah. Well, thanks to the both of you who are going to help us take this Michigan State example and see the broader implications uh, with your expertise. And we have two folks from Michigan State here to help us really unpack this case study. Uh, Chris Wren, let's begin with you. Thanks so much, Keith, and thanks, uh, Felicia and Dimitri, for getting us started. My name is Chris Wren. My pronouns are she, her. I am a professor of higher education, higher adult and lifelong education at Michigan State University, where I also serve as Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies for Student Success Research. And many folks who might be listening in would sort of know me from some of my work on um, student identity development. I do work on LGBTQ students, multiracial students. Um, I have not formally studied governance, although I did work at the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Board of Higher Ed for a year. Um, I just find myself embroiled in it, um, in kind of fun ways. It has ways come to you. It has landed, as I say, you know, when it, when it comes to your doorstep, you can't, you, you can't pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. taking, you know, as a senior faculty member, I have some certain kinds of privileges to act in these uh, spaces. And so that's sort of what I'm doing. Um, and I uh, would like to acknowledge that Michigan State University uh, is uh, like Loyola, where Dimitri is, is on the land of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy. And also we are a land-grant university from the first Moral Land-Grant Act. And so we have a particular obligation to think about our role in the, um, the ways that the Moral Land-Grant Act was used for genocide and displacement of people. And our university uh, benefits from land in northern parts of Michigan and sits on land that was ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being here to uh, help us all. And uh, Brendan is here with us as well, also from Michigan State. Tell us a little bit more about you. Hey, great to be here. My name is Brendan Cantwell, and I am a associate professor um, of higher adult and lifelong education at Michigan State University. I use he, him pronouns. Um, and my work focuses on the politics and political economy of higher education in the United States and um, around the world. I do a lot of work comparatively. I um, am interested, I'm really interested in the way that um, broad social and political dynamics um, shape higher education and the way that higher education contributes to those dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the governance work that I have done in the past has actually been comparative, not in the United States, but like um, like my colleague, Chris Wren, I've um, been hoisted into a hyper-local <laughs> study of governance uh, because uh, Michigan State University uh, uh, has been for several years a, um, a, a, a rich source of data. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. 
Well, thank you all for being here. Let's let's get into it. Uh, Chris and Brendan, you're not only faculty members at Michigan State, as, as you just articulated, you're also leaders and scholars of higher education. And you've both been outspoken and recently led a teach-in on academic governance that Dimitri was able to be a part of as well. And this teach-in, one of our student affairs colleagues called it, and I'm going to quote, probably the most punk rock thing I've seen in academia. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know what they mean by that, but I'm excited. So please help us bring us up to speed, which what has happened at MSU and what you see ahead. Yeah, Chris, do you want to start or should should I go? Um, Brendan, why don't you give folks like the larger scope? Like, okay. why is Michigan weird? Like, why does why does the state? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good place to start. So why is <laughs> Michigan weird? Um, so. One of the reasons that Chris and I and some of our colleagues um, thought that doing a teach-in would be a good idea, and I'm not sure that uh, any of us are often called punk rock anything. So I'm, I'm happy to. I'm kind of. I'm kind of honored to hear that. Right. Um, is because Michigan's governance structure um, is so very unusual that um, we thought that there's like a general low baseline across higher education knowledge of governance. And I don't mean just folks involved in student affairs and higher education work, but like, you know, staff in other domains, um, faculty who, you know, if you're teaching in the biology department, do you ever think about university governance? Well, maybe not mm -hmm. that much. Mm -hmm. um, and then you layer on the fact that Michigan has a really distinctive structure, that it would be important to help the community understand some of the context um, that makes the particular situation at Michigan State possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so that context is that Michigan has something um, what we might call like, um, uh, it's on, if you have the scale of state um, of state governance systems in the United States from like really consolidated, really sort of coordinated by the state government on one end, and then not a lot of state coordination at all <laughs> on the other end. Michigan is here at this not a lot of coordination <laughs> level. So in the 1963 constitution of the state of Michigan, um, universities are granted something called constitutional autonomy. And what that means is that the state has very, very limited oversight um, of the universities. There's no involvement from a state department of education. There's no state office of higher education or coordinating board or statewide governing board. Um, the constitution provides that each um, public um, university, um, and I'm talking specifically about four-year campuses here, mm -hmm. um, will we'll have its own governing board, that the state is obliged to provide an adequate appropriation to the institutions, and then it lays out the process for the selection of the governance boards. So Michigan State University, the University of Michigan and Wayne State University, which are historically the three kind of research universities in the state have elected, um, directly elected governance boards. And the remainder of the public four-year universities have governance boards that are just for that campus, but are appointed by the governor and approved by the legislature. Mm -hmm. So the elected governance boards for the three campuses that we mentioned, um, the, the candidates get nominated by the political party. So the Democrats and Republicans, 
Um, they get nominated for reasons that often have nothing to do with higher education in any way. Um, sometimes it's just name recognition mm -hmm. um, and the parties want to put somebody who they think people will know and vote for. Um, other times and increasingly in more recent years, it's been about folks who are really um, sort of party activists and strongly aligned with the um, uh, the primary uh, uh, base of the party. Mm -hmm. So the sort of people who go to state party conventions and are really into like pushing the party platform forward. Um, that has led to candidates, particularly on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side, who are running on questions, running for a board of trustees on questions that don't necessarily have a lot to do with the university. So I remember doing a content analysis from the election two years ago and um, looking at all the, um, the, the platforms that the candidates put out and their websites, and they would run on things like being pro-life or mm -hmm. uh, supporting the Second Amendment. So um, people tend to vote, tend not to have a lot of information on the candidates. There tends not to be a lot of information available for people, even if they wanted to get that information, which they don't really want to get. And so they vote, like I'm voting for Republicans this year, they vote for the Republican candidate. Those people are elected, um, they become trustees or regents, depending on the board. They're elected for an eight-year term, and everybody kind of forgets about them. And they're not attached to a coordinating board. They're not attached to any kind of state structure that might help with onboarding, that might help with training, with sense-making about the role of trustees. And so they are the legal university, they're it. And they're just kind of put there by the voters with not a lot of preparation and not a lot of support or help to understand higher education, their role in it. So that's the kind of big picture story for how we got to the situation, how we could get to the situation mm -hmm. that we're in. And I think well, this is gonna update us about what that situation is. Yeah, before we get to that, I, I also am making an assumption here that too, that if they wanna have a political future, that the way to do that is to be very activist in their roles, right? Mm -hmm. to, to garner more attention, to garner favor, to garner that. Is that what we're seeing here a little bit? Uh, you know, I think that that's true. I'm not sure that we have like a firm empirical based to say that the governance board is a good spot for launching a political mm. career. But it is definitely true that um, it seems like the kind of more attention that you can get um, that particularly in a really super polarized political environment where something called negative partisanship is um, the most powerful sort of organizing force and negative partisanship is like your hatred for the other side <laughs> rather than your actual support or belief in particular policies or issues. And so I think, and I'm, you know, uh, there was a board of trustees meeting today and one of the Republicans who is on the sort of firebrand spectrum of this said some really horrible things about faculty members. Mm -hmm. um, uh, really, really horrible things. And I think that that plays into this whole sense of negative partisanship. Yeah, These yeah. folks are different than us. They don't like us. We don't like them. We're against them. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's specifically to like launch into a different kind of political career or whether it's just really strong commitment to partisan identity um, and that is animated by negative partisanship. I'm not sure, but definitely yeah. um, there are inclinations and maybe incentives to really um, 
to, to not think about the university in nuanced terms and really think about everything through this partisan lens. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just wanted to jump in um, a little bit too, and it's kind of a question comment maybe, um, but I imagine- That's and, a faculty and specialty, by the way. <laughs> I try, you know. yeah. um, <laughs> try to stay on brand. Uh, <laughs> Brennan and Kristen, maybe you can give some insight, but I imagine that um, though they may not be paths to, um, we can't, we, we're not really sure if they're paths to like, like political aspirations. The, um, if a party is able to garner a majority of those elected seats, it is a bit of a poll test for um, political parties to see where they are landing in the general populace for the state, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can get, if a party can get a majority of those seats Run, with these people running on platforms that are connected to that political party, it does send a signal out to the party that we're doing well, right, mm -hmm. with the general populace. So I wonder if if they do serve as kind of a poll test for um, the larger, more general elections that are, that are coming mm -hmm. up for those those parties. Yeah, I think so. I think it works both ways that like mm -hmm. if the Republicans are up, then they're going to win the seats because people mm, are putting down gotcha. ballot. But I, I think it definitely is an indication of, um, you know, where, where the public is in terms of alignment with the parties. But I also mm. think it's, um, in, you know, universities are pretty big resources to control. Mm -hmm. And if you have partisan control of them, then, um, you know, I think it's important to be able to capture these institutions uh, that, uh, that command a lot of resources, public and private money. So you have a say, there's a partisan control in the direction of those resources. And you then have a platform to wage these kind of culture war fights yeah. um, mm -hmm. yeah. over yeah. critical race theory, over mm -hmm. transgender issues. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that it's actually a political prize as mm -hmm. much as it is um, like a way to register. It's that, yeah, but it's also a prize itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's a lot of good context. Uh, Chris, help us understand, uh, now that we understand the board, what is, what is going on as we think about this case study and then also the broader implications. Sure. So I'm going to start back in April. Um, those of you who are tuning in, who come through student affairs, um, when I say the words, the business school held a Gatsby gala, um, you are probably thinking, what good could ever have come from a business school event called a Gatsby Gala? And I will tell you, no good has come of it. Well, maybe good has come of it, but much ill has come of it. All right. So in April, there is this event. Um, and uh, unbeknownst to most of campus, um, at this event uh, was uh, alleged, um, has been investigated and has been shown that there was a Title IX violation that the then dean of the business school witnessed. The then dean of the business school in April did not report. Michigan State University, we, many universities, but we are given our relatively recent history with sexual assault on campus, Title IX. Uh, we are very all aware from RAs and uh, instructors through provosts and presidents and deans, mandatory reporters. The dean did not report this. This is all on the record. I'm not just making this up. So um, in August, when the Title IX investigation got to the point where it was known that the dean had done this and not report, had seen this and not reported it, the dean did not do it. The dean saw it and did not report it. Um, he was called into the provost's office, I, I believe, probably called in, and uh, was asked to resign. So the provost uh, called for the resignation and the dean did resign. It is now after that sort of very much established in fact that these are all true things. Um, but at that time, the board of trustees 
um, they decided that they would hire an outside law firm to investigate the provost's action in dismissing the dean. Now, the deans all report to the provost. The provost has complete personnel authority over deans, can fire them for no cause at all. This would seem to actually be a cause, but this is completely within the, the provost's purview. Uh, the president supported the provost, uh, but this did not stop this outside law firm from, this, from being paid. It is still an ongoing investigation of this action. That constituted, to many of us, uh, it was like the loudest alarm bell I, I can imagine hearing in my head of like, oh, we, the, the board is investigating the provost for completely within purpose for a personnel action. So many of us are like, oh, that sounds bad. Other people on campus weren't kind of upset by that because of our recent history of Title IX. They're like, well, maybe it's okay if the board investigates a Title IX kind of thing. Doing their due like, diligence. Doing their due diligence. I was like, on the other hand, um, the provost dismissed the dean for not doing the right thing in Title IX. So if we're going to lean in any direction, is that the direction we want to lean? Like, we've had a problem with that in the past. So that's going on. A few weeks after that is announced, um, an anonymous board member leaks to the Detroit Free Press that the Board of Trustees is in conversations with the president and that they have given him until Tuesday of that same week, two days later, to step down or be fired. So that goes out in the, in the paper. This hits campus sideways. Um, and then over the next several weeks, there is um, confusion. There's speaking out by different board members. Uh, there are several public meetings of different sorts where different board members say different kinds of things. So board members are speaking out of turn. They are not directly addressing this uh, example of what I called in the speech, um, an example of startling overreach um, on the board's part and an ethical violation of their own board of conduct and ethics. Um, so that's sort of all going on. So the, the, real, uh, the real problem, people are like, well, what's the problem? Why did you have a teaching? What, what did the board do? It was this overreach into this level. We, part of why we organized the teaching was to help some of our colleagues and students understand that you know, a board that can overreach on a dean appointment can overreach mm -hmm. to overturn a tenure decision, can overreach to take the critical race theory course that we teach in the college of vacation out of the curriculum. We have people running for our board right now who have said that's exactly what they want mm -hmm. to do. So putting, not just drawing a line in the sand, but getting people back into their appropriate roles in academic governance and getting the board mm -hmm. into its role is really important to us. Um, the board has made clear in a three-page single-spaced letter that they clearly lawyered up um, that uh, they have the legal right to do this investigation. And nobody on campus has said they don't have the legal right. We are just all pushing back from academic governance saying like, you have the legal right, that is not your job, however. Your mm -hmm. job is to be uh, staying at this level with the president, the provost makes personnel decisions. This is an mm -hmm. academic decision of the university. So that's kind of the current situation. And there's been a parade of votes of no confidence in the board, our undergraduate student government, graduate student government, faculty senate. Uh, mm -hmm. This morning were released the results of what's called the academic congress, which is like all the people. And it was 1719 to 700 uh, to 179, I believe, in favor mm -hmm. of no confidence in the board. So we have all made quite clear we have no confidence. And as a result of having no confidence, our that's, a, that's like a 10 to 1. You got yeah. you got that's a whole huge, bunch of faculty degree on any huge margin. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. was so interesting about it. And uh, my, my spouse said this the other day. Very rarely in higher ed do we see the students, the staff, the, ma the vast majority of faculty agree on anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so for Michigan State yeah. to have so many of their shared governance, like structures and apparatus to, to be, you know, in, in opposition to what the, the trustees have done over the last couple of months is, is, 
it, you know, I shared this with with um, Chris and Brendan, but it, it, it was almost refreshing to be like, oh, like campuses can still like be activated and, and share information and teach each other and, and sort of engage in these apparatuses. Um, so I, it's, it's unfortunate what they're all coming together around, mm -hmm. but it is it is heartening to, to see um, some of that kind of fight still be in, right. the, in the apparatuses that exist. Well, we want to we want to talk about some of the broader implications. But before we move there, anything else that would be helpful for our audience to understand about what has, is, or will be happening with Michigan State? We're going to get a new president in the interim first. We don't know who that is. How that process <laughs> unfolds yeah, and right. who they pick is going to be important for understanding whether the board is recalibrating or not. Right. Right. So there's this hope that is the board listening? Are they understanding? And then this will be the first test of whether that's happening or if they're mm -hmm. they're digging in and going in the other direction. I mean, one of my my thoughts from an outside perspective is who's going to be your next president? Who would take that job? Um, you know, there, there's are been, you interested? No. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, but I, I you, you know, it's a real concern of like managing a university at that level, that size of that scope of that complexity with all the history, with all the challenges of all the everything, and then add this, um, there's not a lot of people who have the capacity and talent and credibility to do that. And you're narrowing the ability, the, the scope of candidates with this kind of engagement um, with this president and some past presidents. And it would seem also having to navigate an overactive board. Right. Yeah, and, and um, you know, you might see some of my Florida stuff in the background. I'm a very proud University of Florida graduate, and um, proud most of the time. But to your point, Keith, like, so you know, for, for many people that know, like Senator uh, Ben Sass is, you know, the, the heir apparent to, to the president role. Mm -hmm. But it's to your point, some of the rationale that people are giving for why that appointment and why there was only one finalist for you know this this top you know public research university was because there's only so many people that could deal with sort of the overactive governor you know a really you know sort of pent up student body and and, and faculty base that the number of people who would want to step into that position narrowed it a lot and, and we, we we would imagine you know most academics not wanting to sit in that sort of hyper political space so it makes sense okay to appoint, right, it makes sense to some people, right, to appoint a sitting, a, a sitting, you know, senator who, you know, has clear, you know, political allegiances to a particular party. So yeah. I do think that's a really astute point, like how that limits who could play the role when, when trustees start right. to get into some of these things. And then the trickle down to who will be provost and who will be right. dean and who will take on other leadership roles. Well, we're starting to move in this direction. So let's go ahead and do it. So we have Felicia and Dimitri, you've been studying boards, influence on higher education and how higher, how, how higher ed can navigate governance effectively to st serve students in the community. How is what we're seeing at Michigan State reflective of other trends you're seeing for higher education in the U.S. Dimitri, Dimitri you I'll, let you, I'll let yeah. Dimitri kick it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the things that we talk to, to board when we hear from boards a lot is that they don't want to get into the weeds of campus. Mm -hmm. And what that has done, at least in the DEI space, is allowed boards to see the responsibility to being involved in helping their institutions transform themselves to be more equitable for students with minoritized identities. So in that lane, we, 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 we always say, you know, boards would never not know where their dollars are being spent. Why, why should they not know more about the DEI work that's going on? 
The flip side of that call into that work is what we're seeing at Michigan State when the board um, chooses almost randomly, but not randomly, to get really deeply involved into something and to, to be involved in a way that is disruptive to the campus community. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's, that's where the, the line is, right? Uh, we want boards to, we don't want rubber stamp boards because that can be problematic. And we, we in Michigan State is also an example of that, unfortunately. Um, so we, we don't want rubber stamp boards, but we don't want board overreach. And so what we've been trying to think and dream up is what are we calling boards into? What are the, the frameworks and parameters, parameters that we can give trustees, that we can provide to boards, that we can train people on that help us imagine a different way to do governance. And right now what we're seeing, you know, I would argue on a national landscape is that tension of, we don't know what to do. We don't, we don't know how <laughs> right. to be not hands-on and overreach, but we also, um, you know, there's a lot of boards that are super comfortable being rubber stamp boards and that can lead to harm too. So how do we start to dream and imagine a, a different approach? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna add to amplify some of the things Dimitri um, has said, I think two, for me, two things, Michigan State um, kind of is representing two things that I think are going on now that are, that are rising to the top of our consciousness in higher ed. Um, and I think one, um, to, to the point that Dimitri brings around training, <laughs> one of the things, um, so I, I too struggled with like, did we do this, right? Like, mm -hmm. did, did we do this? But I'm going to say, no, people didn't hear our whole message, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, and one of the things in calling boards in to be more um, proactive in areas of DEI on their campuses, what we also encourage, right, is that they get trained mm -hmm. in these areas. And I think one of the things we see happening is that there's an assumption that because people have been leaders, quote unquote, in other areas, and other sectors that they understand leadership in higher education. Right. Um, and what we find with board members is many of them don't know what it means to be a board member. They don't know what that entails. Many, we know that demographically, most of our board members are not people from higher ed or who study higher ed, who understand higher ed, right? So they bring in principles of governance and leadership um, and management that don't necessarily always align with the principles and the structures and the governance practices that are normed in higher education. And so when, we, when, when we're like, oh, we want you to, we don't want to see the Title IX oversights that we mm -hmm. saw historically, there sometimes is an overcorrection because they move in the way that we see board of directors move in corporations mm -hmm. very swiftly and very, you know, whatever the consensus is mm -hmm. in that little group of people, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to a more shared governance structure, more representative governance structure, and where boards are partners with mm -hmm. the folks on their campuses. And so I think that is something we're starting to see across higher ed is that um, boards are moving in ways that they think are appropriate for higher education, but what it's exposing is that they don't really know how higher yeah. education works. And some would say may not care. The second mm -hmm. thing I think that may be going, that is going on, and I think if we look back to 2020, there was a canary in the coal mine. And that canary was that we saw administrations and boards moving and making decisions without the input of faculty. 
Mm-hmm. And we and and justifying it right by we have a crisis, we have to navigate this crisis quickly and swiftly, and shared governance doesn't allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we started then to see faculty start to get activated, like wow, people are making decisions about our lives, about our students' lives, and not consulting us, mm-hmm. right? And that I think um, was our canary in the coal mine, and brings us to where we are now, where around the country, we're seeing situations like MSU and other institutions where boards are moving um, in administration, administrations are moving without the input of faculty mm-hmm. and faculty are like, wait a minute, we matter here. We are very um, invested stakeholders in this, in this governance structure mm-hmm. and our voices should be heard. Um, and so I think we saw it coming, but unfortunately like the board, some faculty don't have any clue how their institution works either. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it wasn't until these things started happening that faculty even realized that they had started to be pushed and isolated out of decision-making mm-hmm. structures at their institutions. And so unfortunately, I do think what we're seeing, and not just in Michigan, but in many states, is a coming to the head of what happens when faculty get slowly but surely um, erased from the governance structures and from mm-hmm. the decision-making mm-hmm. processes at an institution. And now we're trying to figure out how to get back on track while also moving quickly in crisis mode. I think it's a, it's a great point. And I love, Dimitri, your language about imagining what board involvement could look like and Alicia talking about training. I think the disconnect for me, though, is some of this doesn't seem, seems disingenuous. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not that they have the institution's best interests. It's not that they want to create the most effective leadership structure. It's not that they have different views about doing that. Some of it feels, uh, as I see what happens in Florida and Texas and Idaho and other places, um, I'm sure we have board overreach because of lack of training. I'm sure we have board who are not as involved in certain things because they don't know and they don't understand. That seems to be a, a problem, right? And, and a problem we can address. But then there's this disingenuous, like, I'm using this to advance my political career. I'm using this to score points with the base. Back to Brendan's comments about negative, is it negative partisanship? Yeah. Right, and scoring points. So how do we navigate probably the both end? And, you know, boards are 30 people, eight people, 12 people. And we probably have some people there who are genuinely interested in advancing the institution and maybe need help being effective in doing that. And we maybe have others who are less genuine uh, about that. Um, can I, thoughts can about I how we navigate? Yeah, look, okay. thoughts about yeah. how we navigate that and, and beyond Michigan State and other places. Yeah. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead, Brendan, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, I think that um, yes, 2020 and the pandemic uh, that Felicia brought up, I think that's a really astute point um, in terms of like, you know, uh, boards and presidents deciding they gotta act alone, act quickly. Um, and maybe in an emergency, sometimes you do. Um, but it does set that precedent. I want to go even back a decade before to mm. tw- to 2010 and the midterm election and the mm. Tea Party revolt and say that we need to separate, I think, often, not always, but public and private boards in yes. terms of this mm-hmm. assumption of good faith that you were talking about, Keith. And that, you know, from 2010 onward, Republicans in a very kind of different Republican party than we had in the recent past took over so many governorships and state mm-hmm. legislatures. And they built over that the, the ensuing 12 years, a huge cadre of really, really far right 
trustees in public higher education around the country, like this gentleman in Minnesota who just had to resign for saying some super racist stuff about a University of Minnesota campus. And so, um, you know, this happened, it feels like it happened overnight, but it started a long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. And that process, those processes um, unfold over time. And sometimes it's only looking back that we realize the consequences. Yeah. I wanted to to um, kind of speak to the thing you were speaking about, Keith, and and I'm going to push back a little bit because I don't know that I buy in that what um, some of these folks who seem to be um, pushing a particular platform or using the trusteeship as a platform for their own political mm -hmm. views is disingenuous. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it actually is them seeing them bringing their values to the table and that and, and by their standards and values, they are making the institution better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, and look at some of my research around board composition in the presidential selection process, though it was particularly in the private HBCU space. What, one of the things I found was that um, though board members knew they were supposed to be objective and really tried to be objective in the process, the reality was the way in which they evaluated candidates aligned with their personal values. Mm. All right. And so I, I, I think what we are really have to ask ourselves is what, what happens when the, the values of the board and board members that sit around that table do not align with the mission of mm. the institution? And how do we reconcile that within the structures that we have? And I think that's more so what we're wrestling with. I don't think they're disingenuous. I think they genuinely think they're doing what's best. Mm. Thank you. I appreciate that, Felicia. Mm -hmm. I would jump there and add that Mike Bastido, who was able to be with us at the teaching last week, did some at conversation. Like, you know, there's some that like, uh, I, I think there's a range, right? Of the like, the ones who don't know what they're doing, but could be trained up. The ones who really think they're acting in the best interest, but we would disagree on what the best interest of the institution is. I mean, I want to throw in, isn't actually an answer to your question, Keith, but that's, you know, that's what professors do. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's more of a comment than a question, but it's actually just an answer to a different question you didn't ask. Um, one of the things that we've been thinking about at Michigan State is, is this an opportunity for us to think about, I mean, even once we get faculty governance and the board governance kind of back in line, we have thousands of employees who are not in any way represented in our governance mm -hmm. system. Um, mm -hmm. yes, you know, yes. Grad student employees, custodians, cooks, uh, IT people, like all these yeah. other people yeah. who currently have no say, like they're not students and, um, you know, they, where's their say? And, you know, like most places we are, the percentage of instruction at campus happening by tenured faculty is decreasing. But, you know, even before that, like there's just thousands of people, like my student affairs colleagues, like just mm -hmm. thousands of people. And they may be represented by unions, but the unions are not a governance organization. Right, so, right, right. You know, is there a possibility in this, constitutional crisis, as it were, for Michigan State to think about, hey, 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 you know, could we elevate and create spaces for that? And that's one of the things that I think about as an opportunity in this for us, as we mm. begin to settle in what the board is supposed to be doing and the rest of us, but just say like, um, what about the rest of those people? Like, they shouldn't just rely on the faculty to think they know what's best for the institution either, right? Because <laughs> right, that's not right. gonna be best for everybody. Um, so I do feel like it's it's a chance to, to think again about just governance in general and, why the reliance on tenured faculty, and there are some reasons for parts of that, but yeah. th there's a whole bunch of folks not in that conversation as well. I, I love you framing this as an opportunity. Sometimes the crisis can evoke real change that has maybe been long needed, but not been possible. And this might be an opportunity for that. What would you add here, Dimitri? 
Yeah, I was just going to say one of the things that I, I and I appreciate um, Chris kind of bringing us out to the macro level too, because that's where my mind went, where, and, and Brendan brought us back into the history as well. But, you know, obviously since the the, the 80s, we've, we've really had to wrestle with is, is higher education a public good, right? Like we mm-hmm. come back to that conversation. And I think these are the, um, uh, the kind of reverberations of us as a society not really having um, coherent and consistent understandings of whether we think higher ed is a public good. And, and the reason I come back to that is because if it is a public good, then we should want as many people involved in the governance apparatus as possible since it impacts many, many of us, all of us. Um, but if it's a private good, then yeah, having a few small actors make decisions about things like corporations yeah, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg wants to make Meta and, you know, fine, like it's publicly traded, but it's, it's a company, right? Like whatever. So I, I think, you know, I want us to also see that in this too. Why, why should you care, right? Like you might be asking yourself, like I'm a you know, student affairs professional at so-and-so university, like Michigan State's great, love, the, love Sparty, but okay. But I think this, this shows up on so many of our campuses because we're wrestling as a society around the role of higher education as, as a sort of public good versus private good. Um, and, and that impacts what, you know, how people engage this conversation. Yeah. And so learning about it and seeing how it's playing out in other places, I think can help us be um, more tapped into what's going on around us locally. Yeah, Keith, I wanted to add one more thing real briefly because mm-hmm. I know we're running um, up against mm-hmm. the clock, but I think to that point to Jimmy Shree about um, we're wrestling with this, this is a public good. I think the question we keep coming back to um, for a while now when we run into these cases like Michigan State, and I know you and I brought this up um, with the UNC situation with, um, um, uh, I can't think of her name. Nicole Hannah Jones, Jones, right? In how do we hold boards accountable, right? Mm-hmm. We, at this very moment, we have no mechanism to hold boards accountable. The closest we get, right, is like maybe a governor, legislature dismissing board members in a, or, or a vote of no confidence. But I think we're even Or a week to a the, newspaper. Right, what the power of a vote on no confidence is right now, right? We, mm-hmm. we don't even know what the value of that uh, is or the, the capital that holds in um, some of these situations. And so I do think we have to begin to um, have more pointed conversations around um, how do we assess boards? Because right now they mostly assess themselves and we can see the problems that could arise from that. And then what are the mechanisms to hold boards accountable to the people that they serve? Mm-hmm. And I think if we can start to wrestle with those questions and come up with some mechanisms, I think it'll get us closer to reimagining governance and reimagining mm-hmm. um, the way in which we do governance in higher education. Mm. Wonderful. I, I mean, I, I love how we've come full circle on this from very specific detailed things to broader questions uh, affecting so many and uh, a call to some transformative change that might be possible. As Felicia mentioned, we are running out of time. We knew we would. The podcast is called Student Affairs Now. We always like to end with what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? So just real quick, whatever's top of mind, maybe our conversation or maybe unrelated to it. And also, uh, where can folks connect with you? Feel free to direct them wherever you like to direct them. So Brendan, what, what are you troubling now? I've been thinking for a while about something that I tentatively call the institutional trap, which is um, this idea of a kind of a bad faith politics and a good faith organization. So how does a good faith organization like a university, um, which doesn't want to wade into partisan politics, operate 
um, uh, kind of above the fray when it's a, in a socio-political environment of a lot of bad faith, negative politics, and um, the university can ignore it and get the politics done to them, or they can engage in it and maybe seem like they're being partisan or political mm -hmm. as an institutional trap. Um, and this is the kind of thing I like to talk about on Twitter, um, <laughs> although maybe not after uh, Elon Musk took over, but you can find me at uh, can't be underscore B. So at can't underscore B. Oh, speaking of public and then private and governance, right. there's another good example <laughs> right there. Uh, Dimitri, what are you troubling now and where might folks be able to connect with you? Yeah, so I am, am troubling the idea of like the, the, the study of governance is like only for, for some. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I teach an Oregon Gov class and, and I love to, you know, get people excited about governance and to help people see themselves in, in governance. And so I want to trouble this idea that governance is only for trustees or governance is only for, you know, full professors or mm -hmm. like governance is for is for everyone and we all have a role to play. And, and, and I also want to trouble the idea that like if we were saying this before we started recording, but what's happening at Michigan State could be happening at your campus, you know, tomorrow or after the election. Mm -hmm. um, and so and so we want to be prepared. Um, and I think a teaching is a great response, right? But how do we be, get proactive? How do we get upstream from these issues? So I'm troubling that idea. Like I want us to be more well-versed and more literate in our governance as a broader community. Um, so to hopefully um, be more proactive in some of these situations. And where you can find me, I'm on Twitter, uh, dmorganphd. Um, and yeah, you can email me. I always love to connect with people about these topics. Awesome. Thank you. Alicia, what are you, what's on your mind now? Yeah, so I kind of have two things that I think I'm troubling, or at least are rolling around in my brain mm -hmm. um, most days. I think the first is how do we, how do we um, push forward or reawaken or reinvigorate a spirit of shared governance and faculty advocacy um, in spaces which it has been lulled to sleep? Mm -hmm. um, and dealing with the ramifications of being in hibernation and now wanting to come out of hibernation. What does that process actually look like? Um, and, and what does it mean when an institution has um, various understandings of what shared governance is and um, who gets to be involved in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I've really been wrestling with that. And then I think the second thing is really thinking about where, where are the intersections of race power and governance in higher education? And what does it mean to understand governance within the context of culture and race and ethnicity and, and um, understanding the relationship between organizations' racial identity as organizations and the ways in which they approach governance and, and decision-making? Um, and so those are kind of the two areas I'm wrestling with. My you can find me also on Twitter at, um, at Felicia Elena, which is F-E-L-E-C-I-A-E-L-A-N-A. -E -A -A. Um, so you can find me there. I may or may not be talking about higher education, but I will be there. So <laughs> you can find me there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Chris, what are you troubling now? Part of what I'm troubling is how, as a more established scholar, I keep up with the brilliance of the colleagues around me. I'm like, ah, um, it's a lot to keep up with. Brendan. Yep. I know so much. Um, I'm also really um, drilling down to student affairs. This is where I started my career. I think I'm, I'm a little troubled by the tendency in student affairs right now to 
um, and, and this will come off in a way that's gonna get me in trouble in the field. Um, uh, the, uh, the laser focus on necessary social justice work has led some of us to want to just burn it all down without mm -hmm. figuring out the next step. I'm thinking of Dimitri, like we're calling it out all over the place. What are we calling it into? How are we building the ethical, equitable, shared governance future of this organization? Because there are people outside the organization who would be very happy to let us just burn it down. Mm. Like there are people in the far right who if I burn down higher ed, they're not coming back with anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like attention in the field right now in an exciting way, there's a lot of possibility, but I keep looking for where's the hope, where's the possibility, where's the building? And again, at the same time saying, we don't just accept all this, the bad stuff that's here, but gosh, how do we work on that without kind of falling into the trap of letting well, the right let us eat us? A really smart person gave a whole talk about this in a presidential address about being critical and generative. And so I so appreciate your comments on that and people can find that in other places. We'll link to it in the show notes. So yes, we have to be critical and analyze things. And what are we building? What are we generating? What else, Chris? Oh, uh, people who want to find me um, uh, at Chris uh, at Chris Ren on Twitter is probably the place again until until I burn that down with Elon Musk um, <laughs> or just email me. I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. So wonderful. Well, thank you all so much, and I appreciate those comments um, as we close out. This has been terrific, very thought provoking, very challenging, um, very difficult to hear some of this, and also very inspiring to hear some of the possibilities ahead. So, thank you all for sharing this with us. And thanks to our sponsors of today's episode, Simplicity and Leadership. Simplicity is the global leader in student affairs technology platforms with a state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And LeaderShape. LeaderShape partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. They offer engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, visit LeaderShape.org or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. As always, a huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the work behind the scenes to make us look and sound good. If you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website, studentfairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to the MailChimp list. While you're there, check out the archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and for everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thank you all. <laughs>